from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. This is now the sixth week of this sermon series. We pick up in the sixth chapter, page 38 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1 through verse 13. Listen to God's word to you and to me. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where does this man get all this? What is this wisdom that this Jesus has received? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went out among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in 1871, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church gathered in Chicago for its annual meeting. Today, the General Assembly meets every other year. This year just happened a couple months ago in, in St. Louis, Missouri. And the group that gathers there are elected delegates from all of the presbyteries in the denomination. Now, a presbytery is, is simply a regional cluster of Presbyterian churches that affiliate with each other as sort of a mid-level governance body. Now, for some of you who have never uh, been in a Presbyterian church before, this is all going to be brand new to you. Some of you have been here forever. It's still something you don't understand. But let me give you just a short Reader's Digest version of what a presbytery is and how this all works. 
So these presbyteries are made up of these churches. In Atlanta, we have 91 Presbyterian churches. There are 40,000 members of these, uh, of these churches within this presbytery. And every presbytery, there's 170 now, every presbytery, based on their size, sends elected delegates, pastors and lay leaders, elders, to go, and their job is to discern the will of God for the national church. Their job is to discern what God wants us to do at the largest level of our governance, of our life together. And so at this general assembly in 1871 in Chicago, you have all these pastors and all these delegates. They're coming together to discern what God wants the church on a national level to do. And, and there was a particular issue on the floor of that presbytery meeting that was brought by a special committee uh, who was called to consider the creation of something called a sustenation fund. A sustenation fund. These delegates were trying to address the reality that many ministers in 1871 that were serving all of the Presbyterian churches, many ministers were woefully underpaid that many churches uh, paid them a wage that they couldn't live on. And so this committee brought a report forward saying that we have to do something. They brought a proposal of a, a sustenation fund that would somehow bridge the gap between what, what churches could pay their pastor and what it actually required for them to live in the communities in which they lived. And, and so, of course, as they're making their case, the, this committee brings forward firsthand testimony of ministers' experiences. Some talk about how they can't pay their bills. Some talk about how they can't afford clothes for their children. Some talk about how they have to have another job just to make ends meet. Now, as you read these minutes, as only a Presbyterian nerd would do, as you read these minutes, you begin to understand that there is a group they're specifically writing to. And there's a group of lay people in the denomination that have basically made the argument that preachers shouldn't complain. After all, look at the scriptures. Doesn't it say something about how Jesus, the Son of Man, had no place to lay his head? He's homeless. You should expect a life of hardship, they argued. You, you should expect that, that you're not going to, to receive a lot. That's just the cost of, of ministry. That's the cost of being a Presbyterian minister. One of the texts that they like to quote, this group of lay people that were antagonistic toward this sustenation fund, one of the texts they like to quote was from Mark 6. They love to quote this line from Mark 6. If you are not welcomed or received, then move on to the next town. The logic by these lay people went something like this. Ministers should expect to live a life of hardship, and if a church is not paying you fairly, then you should shake the dust off your feet and go get another job. Or you should shake the dust off your feet and go to a church that will pay you, but just stop complaining. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. But the report, this committee theologically wondered if rejection and hardship brought on by the church or brought on by the denomination is the prescribed experience for Presbyterian ministers. Sure, there's hardship in ministry, but should the source of it be the church, they wondered. 
Is it realistic to think that the pastor can shake the dust of poverty off their feet, uproot their family, and simply move on? And so this report was arguing that Presbyterian ministers shouldn't be expected to, to endure adversity and suffering at the hand of a stingy congregation. And so they put forward this motion to create the Sustenation Fund to bridge that gap. Now, in 2018, I'm thankful that the Presbyterian Church USA, its presbyteries, its board of pension, they have minimums, they have standards that are set for salaries and benefits for church workers. I'm thankful that the board of pensions uh, actually has a program that allows churches like First Presbyterian to subsidize the health care of ministers uh, for churches who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford a full-time pastor. Churches like ours pays into the system so that smaller churches can have a minister. I'm also exceedingly grateful. Uh, for this congregation's careful and generous consideration for all of our church's employees when it comes to a fair, livable wage. And, and I lead with this example from the General Assembly of 1871, not because I want to get into a conversation about ministerial compensation, but I want to get into a conversation about how scriptures, particularly this scripture, from the mouth of Jesus through the pen of Mark, where he says, shake the dust off your feet and move on, how a scripture like that and all that it implies and all that it carries is really hard to stomach. It's really hard to digest when you are on, on the other end of someone's stinginess. How hard is it to just simply shake the dust off your feet and move to the next town when you are on the other end of inhospitality? You know, I, I've encountered and have gone through several sermons in my preparation for this week on Mark 6, the glories of the Internet. And I've been looking through sermons, and, and I found a, a common theme. I found a common thread that many of these sermons sort of travel down the same exegetical road. The preacher uh, would say something like this and, and when thinking about this uh, verse, shake the dust off your feet and move to the next town. That they would say something like this, you have to let some things go. And, and those some things could be, could be anything, but the preacher says, you know, there's times in your life where you've just got to shake the dust off your feet and you've got to move on. You've got to let go of the bitterness. You've got to let go of the anger. You've got to let go of that experience. You've got to let go of that, uh, of that relationship. You've, you've got to press on. You've got to move forward. See, Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet and just keep moving forward. These sermons are, are filled with, with positivisms at best and and at worst, they're, they're filled with a sort of get over it mentality. You know, just shake the dust off your feet and move to the next town. And at some level, as I was reading some of these sermons, it began to feel to me as if, as if this was really hard work. As if the minister should just get over it. If you don't like your salary, just go to another church, find another job, forsake your call. Just move on. And, and as I read these sermons, it sort of felt a little glib. It felt a little too easy. Do you know what I mean? It felt a little bit like it, it muted the pain of the moment. I want to put this exhortation in a little bit of context. As Jesus sends out uh, the 12 disciples with a charge to embody his ministry of healing, with a charge to proclaim that the kingdom of God has arrived to 
to, to bear witness to the forgiveness and grace and love of God in and for the world, he tells them that they're not to rely on money. They're not to rely on a change of clothes. How odd is this, right? Don't bring a bag. Don't bring two tunics, just one. No, change of clothes. Just go out there with your sandals on the road and be dependent, utterly dependent upon the hospitality and the generosity of somebody else. That's the mission. Now, there was an expectation in Jewish culture that if someone came to your house looking for a place to stay, if they came to your house looking for some food to eat because they were hungry, if they were a, a nomad, if they were traveling, if they were wandering, there was an obligation for the homeowner to welcome that person in. They were obliged to meet their needs. So Jesus is he's preparing his disciples by saying this. He's saying there's going to be people that you're going to encounter that will break this custom. There's going to be people who won't fulfill their obligation of hospitality to you. There will be people like those in my own hometown who dishonor you, who, who won't accept you. And when that happens, he says, just shake the dust off your feet and move on. And shake it off as if it's a witness against them. And what does he mean by that when he says as, it's, as a witness against them? I, I think what it means is that when you would come into a home after traveling or after a, a long day of work, the very first thing the host would provide for, the very first thing as you come into their home was that your feet would be washed, right? Probably by a member of the family or if it was a person of means, they would have a servant do it. But that was the first sign that you were welcome, the first sign of hospitality. You would come in and your feet would be made clean. And so logically, if there was no welcome, there was no foot washing. And if there's no foot washing, there's still a lot of dust. And so Jesus is saying, shake the dust off your feet, make it into a pile, put it right there on their front porch and say, do you see this? Do you see it? Do you see what you've done here? This is a sign, this is a symbol that you have not been hospitable to me. And this kind of inhospitality would have been rare for a Jew to a Jew to experience. You see, hospitality and welcome was part of the very essence of, of what it meant to be a part of God's people. What it means to be part of God's kingdom, hospitality and welcome have always been a part of what God wants for human beings, what God wants for the world. This is nothing new. I'm not saying anything new. This has been in the very DNA of our faith since the creation story when God decided to house, to provide for the needs, to show hospitality for Adam and Eve in that garden. And ever since that time until now, that's what God's business has been about. It's been about a reception, a welcome in love and in grace. And now, now, to be sure, as we're reading the Gospel of Mark and those who have been with us this summer, you see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus begins to expand where this hospitality is due, right? It's due to a demon-possessed person. It's due to a Gentile. It's due to a woman who's been outcast because of her illness. It's due to the sinner. It's due to all these other people that that the community was not extending it to at that time. But even still, right, we get to this point where then Jesus instructs the 12 to simply shake the dust off your feet and move to the next town when you encounter an inhospitable home. That instruction, and we don't have an evidence here, but I'm, I'm sort of wondering if that instruction landed poorly for the disciples. I'm wondering if perhaps they thought, 
No. I mean, that's unacceptable. Hospitality is our way of life. This is what's due to us. This is what we deserve. They need to conform to God's way. We need to make them conform to God's way. We're not leaving this front step until we get what's ours. We're not leaving until we get what's due to us, until they do the right thing. And and, and just imagine for a second, if you're in that situation, could you blame the disciples for that kind of sentiment? Would you blame them for that kind of feeling when something that was due to you doesn't come, that something is required, isn't given? I mean, just this past week, there was a story about an African-American woman and her young child in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And they go to their neighborhood pool. And in order to get into this neighborhood pool, you have to go through a gate. And in order to get through the gate, you have to have a swipe card, which every resident of the neighborhood has. And so she enters into the gate with the swipe card. And she's at the pool. And some people don't recognize her. And by the way, she and her child are the only African-Americans in the pool that day. And they don't recognize her. And then a, a white man who, who had some sort of responsibility or some sort of authority or leadership role for the pool goes over to her and asks her for her ID. And, and says, can you show me your ID to prove that you live here? She says, no, I have the key card. I live here. I got in. This is my pool. I, this is my neighborhood. No, I'm not showing you my ID. And so what did he do? He called the police. And the police come. And they did in, in a very professional way. They, they handled that situation in a, in a very honorable and dignified way. And they politely asked the woman, would you be okay if you showed us your ID? And so she took it out and she showed it to the police. He, he read it and, and he showed it to the man. He said, she lives here. This is her pool. She has a key card. And he apologizes to the woman. The police officer says, I'm sorry for this inconvenience. But the man who called the police in the first place didn't apologize. He refused to apologize. He refused to say, I'm sorry. He refused to say, hey, I, I acted in a way that degraded your humanity or, or didn't give you the benefit of the doubt. Now, in that moment, how absurd would it be, follow me here, how absurd would it be if someone then came, after experiencing this, seeing this all, someone came and said, you know what? Just shake the dust off your feet and move to the next town. Move to the next neighborhood. Shake the dust off your feet and move to the next pool. Or how about the the female professional who serves in a male-dominated office who experiences sexism and harassment in a daily way? What if we say to her, you know what, just shake the dust off your feet and find another job? Or or how about the the, the young person or the older person who's discriminated against because of their their age and we say to them, you you know what, Just, just shake the dust off your feet and move on. Go do something else. The sad thing, the horrific thing, is that people have actually said those things to people. And there is the point of conflict for me. Do you sense it? The point of dissonance for Jesus to simply say, hey, just shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. Especially for his disciples, there's got to be some sort of unease because the disciples are owed hospitality. That's what was required by the law. It's what was required by the kingdom of God. It was due to them. And Jesus is saying, just shake it off. 
and move on. The woman deserves to swim in her pool. The professional deserves to be safe and to do her job. The older person, the younger person, deserves full inclusion. Now, look, I am aware that many sociologists today, and it's sort of en vogue to talk about our culture as a victimhood culture. Many sociologists are writing about that. I'm also aware that the threshold of offense may be, in our, in our age, the lowest it's been in a really long time that people get offended quite easily. I'm aware of those uh, conversations. I'm aware of that research. I'm aware, aware of that psychology and that sociology. But I think we also need to be aware that there are offenses that you simply cannot just shake the dust off your feet and move on. I mean, like this offense, the not extend hospitality, it was significant because it was unbiblical. It was unbiblical. It was breaking the law. Just shake the dust off our feet and move on. And in our time, right now in our contemporary time, we know there is real offense. We know there is real injustice in the world. There is real danger for people. There is real exclusion. And because of that, there is real pain. In other words, there is a lot of dust that is piled up in the world. There's a lot of dust, perhaps, that, that is piled up even on the front porch of your life. And as I was reading these sermons, and I, I could be wrong, but in this one moment at 1143 on this Sunday, July the 8th, it feels right to say this. I may not feel this way tomorrow, but right now I feel this way. That I don't think it's the preacher's place, nor do I think it's the church's place, to offer the words that Jesus offered and say, hey, just wipe the dust off your feet and move on. I think Jesus has every right to say that to you. By the power of the Spirit, if those are the words you're hearing this morning, that's right. But you're not going to hear it from me. You're not going to hear it from me. And I don't think you should hear it from the church because the world is too full of dust, it's too full of pain, and we've got, to, we've got to offer, I think, something else instead of our incessant sort of proclamation that you just need to move on. Maybe there's something else we can do as a church. Maybe there's something else I can say. Maybe there's something else that the Word of God says to a world filled with dust piles. And perhaps it's this. I believe that we should be a community I believe we should be a community that points people to Jesus. I believe that wholeheartedly. That we need to be a community that points people to Jesus because ultimately in some mysterious and transcendent way, he is the one who washes our feet clean. I know there's probably some of you within the sound of my voice that have not really experienced Jesus, who, who don't really know that much about Jesus. Let me tell you one story about him in brief. When he was coming to the end of his life, before he was betrayed, he shared a meal with his closest friends, even one of the people who was going to betray him. And, and, and at that meal, he got up and he took, out, took off his robe and he got down and he washed his disciples' feet. We sang, all hail the power of Jesus' name. We hail him not because he's some king enthroned somewhere on high, but because he's in the dirt. He's washing our feet. He gives us a gift of forgiveness and cleanses us in a way that only he can. 
And so we can be a church that encourages one another and encourages other to bring our dirty feet to him. Look, I know there's some people who are walk, walking in this world with caked on dirt, dirt that's been poured on their feet by somebody else or dirt that you've kicked up along the way. I was just south of, uh, of the city, about an hour away, and I was hiking uh, just the other day, and, and, I, and I got to see something that I've only seen here, obviously, in Georgia, that, that red clay, right? That, that red clay, and when it's just rained, it's soft, and it gets on your shoes, and then you come back, and if you leave your shoes out in the sun the way I did, it hardens, right? And it gets real crusty, and it takes great effort to, to wipe it away. I think some of us are walking in the world with that kind of caked-on dust, and we need something something from another world, something transcendent to deliver us. And Jesus is the one who can do that. And there's something else, and I'll close with this. There's something else I think we can become. You know, when I read this, the New Testament, I don't know if you're like this, but when I read the New Testament, oftentimes I will, I will identify with the disciples. And that's a natural thing, right? Because I want to be a disciple and I'm identifying with them. But I think there's another character in this story that we're called to identify with. I think we're called to identify with the homeowners. Jesus says that you're going to go out and you're going to meet people in their homes who welcome you. And then you're going to go out and you're going to meet people who don't welcome you. And I think there is a subliminal question buried beneath this text, though, but when unveiled can make all the difference in our church's life and our individual life. What kind of house are you going to be? There are two houses in this world. There's one that tries to clear up the dust, and there's another one that kicks it up. There's one that welcomes Jesus and his kingdom values of hospitality and inclusion, and there's another one that leaves people dirty on the street. So here's the question, church. What kind of house are we going to be? And individually, what kind of house will you be? Will you be a house that welcomes Christ in disguise? Because every day he knocks at our door. Every day is another day to hear the gospel afresh. Every day is another day where we can embrace the kingdom values. So what kind of house are we going to be? And what kind of house are you going to be? May we be a home that receives Jesus in disguise. May we be a home that embraces his kingdom. May we be a home that tries to eliminate the piles of dust that have formed all throughout our world. May we be that kind of community and that kind of person for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.